Well, it's wonderful to be with you here today and uh, to meet some brothers and sisters in God's family uh, whom I haven't known before. Thank you, uh, Kevin, for that, that um, wonderful introduction. Since you didn't mention that my grandchildren are brilliant and adorable, but, but uh, you did well as far as you went. Uh, it's always great to be with my, my friend Kevin. Uh, when I was a boy, my mother used to take me to hear him preach. Uh, I'm sorry, I just couldn't resist that. It's wonderful to worship the Lord together with you, and uh, thanks to whoever made the decision to have us sing a couple of the Gettys songs, that made me feel right at home. And um, it's wonderful, wonderful to be here with you today. You're, um, You're in a series looking at the book of Proverbs, and a significant part of the book of Proverbs it uses the, the motif of a father instructing his son. Yeah, he also refers to the instruction of, of the mother as well, so it's not just father, it's parental instruction of a son. So, so much of the book is phrased in that way, and we encounter, therefore, this revelation in that form. Unfortunately, that, that's a form that, that most of us spend a couple of decades of life um, learning to question and challenge, right? We grow up as kids, and, and our parents say to us, do this and don't do that. Uh, they give us various kinds of instruction. And from early on, we're wired to challenge that. Don't touch that burner on the stove. Well, well, why not? I mean, it looks cool. It looks cool. It looks like something I should do. And we challenge it. Learn the hard way, perhaps. Don't play in the street. Well, why would I not play in the street? Street hockey is an old and noble tradition. And, and surely the people in the cars will we'll stop rather than running over me. Don't ride with strangers. Yeah, but, but they look like perfectly nice people, so why, why would I not take a ride with them even if they are strangers? Do your homework first before you get on to other things that you want to do. My parents, the killjoys, do the homework first. Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure my friends don't do it that way. And, and I have plenty of time available to do all the things I want to do first, and, and I will get around to the homework eventually. Uh, yeah, maybe. And then, and then we get a driver's license, and, and our, that's after our parents have gone through the trauma of helping us learn to drive. And, and then finally we get a driver's license. And the parents say, now look, don't drive fast. I mean, the speed limits are in place for a good reason. Pay attention to those signs. And, 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 and don't, don't think you need to get into a race with other people on the road. Well, why not? I mean, it, it can't be all that bad to do that. And, and besides... 
Look at, look at the others around me. Don't, don't you understand how everyone drives? I mean, I'll, I, I still sort of remember the challenge of helping all four of our kids learn to drive. I, I made some mistakes along the way. Like our, we have a daughter and then three sons. Our daughter, our daughter was always the, the perfect firstborn, responsive, obedient child who learned to drive and, and um, follow the rules, etc. And then there was our oldest son. And well, let's just say he was wired differently. And then I remember the one day when I, I made the foolish mistake of saying to my oldest son that, uh, I, 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 actually I said, you seem to have a more natural feel for driving than your sister does. He could have kept that to himself. But no, no, he had to tell his sister, which made her somewhat less than happy. But I remember along the way telling the kids, look, that's not the way you're supposed to do it when you drive. And getting a response like, well, you're wrong. Yeah, well, what makes you think I'm wrong? Because I'm watching the way people do it. I said, that's not the point. So we challenge. Save your money for school. Don't, don't spend it. Don't think you always have to have the newest and greatest and fastest of phones and computers, etc., etc. You've got to save your money for school. Oh, yeah, but you don't understand. We have to keep up. Or don't skip class. There's a reason to go to class. People who go to class and, and stay awake and listen actually learn a lot more. So don't skip your class. That's, that's after they leave high school and are on to university. I understand. I mean, I was a university student once in the late Middle Ages. I understand what it's all about. I understand that students don't always focus on, on the schoolwork. I understand that. They find other things to do. Uh, the challenge for me was when, when we had a couple of our sons living in the house while going to university. I, I knew what would be the reality, but when it was happening right in the house in front of my eyes, that was a little harder to take. And occasionally I spoke up when probably, well, it was fools rushing in where angels fear to tread. I probably should have just accepted reality. But we spend a couple of decades of our life learning to challenge parental instruction, thinking they just want to make my life narrow and cramped, and, and they, they, they want to keep me from legitimate pleasure. And, but the larger problem is we often adopt that same stance toward the instruction of our Heavenly Father. And we assume that what God has said is somehow designed to keep us from pleasure, to make our lives narrow, and, and we don't trust his instruction. We may be like, uh, who was it? I think it was H.L. Um, Mencken, who was an early 20th century social critic in the USA, who, uh, who said once, a Puritan 
is someone who is deathly afraid that someone somewhere is enjoying himself. Now, that, that is grossly unfair to the Puritans, but it, but it represents the attitude that many people have toward taking seriously God's instructions found for us in Holy Scripture. The attitude often is, it's just a test case to test our obedience, and, and it has no reference to the good life, to human flourishing. But just as most of us eventually learn that our parents' instructions really were grounded in their experience and, and really were for our good, whether we realized it or not, we need to recognize that, that God's commands, God's instruction about the way to live is for our good. It's for our flourishing. It's for the good life. Now, there, there, are, there are other and, and, frankly, more basic reasons to obey God's word. But even if you're thinking of self-interest, you need to recognize that God's commands are given for your good. That's the one point of today's teaching here. And we're seeing it in the passage that was read earlier, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Now, if you're, if you're looking at the Bible uh, in the Purack, that's probably an English Standard Version. I'm reading late, latest form of the NIV, but it says the same thing, makes the same point. And the fascinating thing about, about these 12 verses of Proverbs 3 is that we have six pairs of verses each pair of which is, is making basically the same point. Obey God's commands. Obey God's revealed wisdom because it's good for you. Obeying God's commands leads to what human beings rightly desire. It leads to human flourishing. It leads to the good life. We may sometimes think that, that the commands are, are there to, to limit our joy. But that's not true. So let's look at those. First pair, first two verses. It's phrased, uh, this is the, the father speaking to his son. And so he's saying, don't forget my teaching. You keep my commands in your heart. Note it's, it's in the heart. It's in the, the center of your being. It's not just... Uh, external obedience, accept my wise instruction and make it a part of yourself. What you are in the interior, which will then manifest itself in the exterior. Make it a part of you deeply. And if you do, it'll prolong your life. Obeying God's instruction leads to a long and prosperous life. That's the point of verses 1 and 2. That's the father instructing his son, but it's clear in the wider context here that the father is seeking to pass along to the son God's instructions. 
And he's saying, if you, if you receive God's instruction about life into your inner being and live it out in practice, the result will be a long and prosperous life. Now, this goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments where we have, a, as, as the Apostle Paul describes it, the first command with a promise was about obeying and honoring parents that you may live long and prosperous life in the land the Lord your God will give you. Living life God's way tends to allow us to have a, a long and prosperous life. Now, some of you are already starting to ask, yeah, isn't that promising a bit much? We'll talk about that again a little bit later, because you may be thinking that at various points along the way. But even at a very basic level, we ought to recognize that many of the ways in which human beings live in rebellion against God's will have the effect of shortening life. Definitely not of lengthening it. So the first prayer says, obeying God's instruction has a tendency to lead to a long and prosperous life. The second pair, verses 3 and 4, tells us that obeying God's instruction leads to good relations with both God and with human beings. Now he focuses specifically on loyal love and faithfulness. Live in a way that, that shows loyal, steadfast love toward both God and, and the humans around you, and faithfulness, truthfulness, living a life of integrity. Bind them around your neck. Uh, in other words, keep these commands in a prominent place, make them always visible before you so you're always going to obey it. And in fact, write them on the tablet of your heart. Internalize all this, that you're going to live in relation to all the persons around you with, with steadfast love and in integrity, truthful and faithful way. Now, sometimes when we get caught up in, in the ways of the wider world around us, we think, to get ahead, I, I really need to cheat. I need, I need to cut the corners. I, I, I need to use deceit sometimes in order to climb the corporate ladder or to make it in this world. But the Proverbs tell us if you, if you live in this faithful, loving way, full of integrity, contrary to some of what goes on around you, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God. Well, that's to be expected if I'm obeying God's commands, but, but in the sight of God and humankind, the human beings around you. And so it's been demonstrated in many different ways. I, I think one of the really outstanding examples of that in, in our lifetime has, has been in the life of a man who, who just died a few months back, Billy Graham. Billy Graham lived a long and fruitful life. 
he, he, he preached to millions of people, communicated the gospel faithfully. Billy Graham was, was used by God in, 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 in unique ways. I mean, who would have expected that, that a man from the American South who preached the gospel in such a straightforward way, who preached in a way that simply said, the Bible says, that, that, that he would get the ear of every American president from Harry Truman on, that, that he would be so respected by, by the wider society as a whole. I mean, you, you, would, you would have to look very far and wide to find someone who was willing to speak publicly in a negative way about Billy Graham. Even though he preached the old-time gospel in, in frankly, kind of old-time way. And, and yet he was almost universally respected and adored. People who would not listen to any other evangelical preacher would listen to Billy Graham. One of the reasons, I think quite clearly, was that Billy Graham was known for his integrity and for caring for people. Early on in his ministry, he and his colleagues uh, created what came to be called the Modesto Manifesto. Because they did it when they were in Modesto, California. And, and they adopted certain rules. And, and early on in his ministry, he, he created an evangelistic association with the board of directors, took a salary. Rather than doing what other evangelists of his day did collecting love offerings, sometimes huge love offerings, and simply taking it. He, he was clearly a man of integrity, and, and in God's providence, he was, he was respected universally. Verses 5 and 6, the third pair. Verses 5 and 6 are, are a pair of verses that many of us have quoted for a long, long time. I remember quoting it in a testimony I gave way back when I was in university, and I was heading off to seminary, a bit of a mid-course correction that the Lord did in my life, and I, I quoted it in the King James Version, um, and the last part of which was, the Lord shall direct thy paths. And I phrased it all in terms of the Lord explaining to me, revealing to me uh, the decision I ought to make about vocation. Unfortunately, I, well, actually fortunately, along the way I learned a lot of Hebrew, and I learned that the verse really wasn't saying quite what I thought it said. But it says something very important. And the point of verses 5 and 6 is God will deal with the consequences of your obedience. God will smooth out our path. God will make our way smooth or or straight. You see, the point of it is, when he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and, and lean not on your own understanding, the point is, 
accept God's instruction about the way we ought to live rather than charting your own course, rather than using your own instincts and your own sense of what's right and fair and good. Trust what God says in his word. In all your ways, submit to him. Be willing to obey his command, even if you don't understand all the reasons for it. And the result is God will deal with the consequences. He will will make your path straight, smooth. He will deal with barriers in the way. He will deal with the consequences of your obedience. The, The same Hebrew verb that's used here for making paths straight is used in Isaiah 40, verse 3, where where Isaiah the prophet says, prepare the way of the Lord, looking ahead to, to ultimately the coming of Messiah. Prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his paths. Now, obviously, he's not saying we ought to instruct the Lord in the way he ought to go. Our task is to, is to sort of clear the way, remove the boulders, get, get the bad stuff out of the way, to repent, in other words, and, and to make a clear way for the Lord to walk. And so that's the point here. If you trust the Lord enough to obey his commands about the way to live rightly and wisely, even if you fear the consequences may not be so good, you can trust God to deal with those consequences. In other words, this, this context is about what we call God's moral will. It's, it's not so much about what school you ought to go to or what house you ought to buy or what car you ought to buy. Those are not unimportant. And sometimes God intervenes in very direct ways to prompt us in those decisions. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he works it out providentially as we, as we seek a right decision. But... As, as important as some of those decisions are, that's not really the point here. The point here is obey God's moral will about the right way to live, and God will take care of the consequences. In verses 7 and 8, he makes the point that obeying God's revealed will is, is, leads to our physical well-being. So don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't just trust your own instincts, your own sense of what is right. Fear the Lord. Recognize he is the one who speaks the wise words and shun evil. What's the result? It'll bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Obeying God's commands is good for us, even physically. The writer here here may have in mind some of the later Proverbs that talk about the problem of alcohol indulgence. And to, to resist God's will on a point like that has obvious negative effects on our physical well-being. God's commands are for your benefit. And then, verses 9 and 10, um, he turns to a, a specific application of this, namely obeying God's commands about generosity with the wealth that he gives us. So we read, honor the Lord with your wealth. Do with your wealth, your income, in in their day in an agricultural uh, context, what comes from the field, what comes from the, the flocks and the herds. Honor the Lord with that, with the first fruits of all your crops. 
Give as the Lord has commanded you. And the result is your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. God will prosper you materially if you obey him and act generously as he commands with what he provides you. Now, there are a variety of instructions in the Mosaic Covenant about uh, what, what the Israelites were to do with the wealth that they, that they received. At the heart of it all was, was the tithe, the 10%, which 11 of the tribes were to give to the tribe of Levi because they had no inheritance of land. Uh, they served the Lord in the tabernacle, the temple. The Levites would give a 10% of what they received to the priests who were a subset of, of the Levites. And yet, there are some really interesting texts talking about the tithes in Israel. I mean, it would be easy for them to think, I mean, I have to give that away right up front? I, 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 I may need that. Some of the tithing laws in Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 14 actually describe part of the tithe being eaten in a celebratory meal in, in Jerusalem before the Lord. Eating part of the tithe. Imagine. Actually, in Deuteronomy 14, the instruction is if, if you live too far from the, the central sanctuary to take all the tithe with you, then you can sell the produce and the animals where you live, take the money, take it to the central sanctuary, and there you can use it to buy uh, meat and other kinds of food and, and wine, and, and you eat it there before the Lord. That's the tithing text you never hear preached. Um, but it shows that the Lord is concerned to meet our needs and to give us joy, and part of that was consumed in a joyful meal of celebration and thanksgiving. There's an echo of this in the New Testament, not about a fixed percentage, but about generosity in general in 2 Corinthians 9. Paul writes to the Corinthian church saying, a year ago you said you were going to contribute to the collection I'm bringing together for the poor saints in Jerusalem, do it. Fulfill that commitment. And he says, if you give generously, God will respond generously. If God can trust you to be generous with your wealth, God will provide you with wealth to use generously. But when we think about God's commands, we may be tempted to resent it and, and say, but, but your commands are setting limits on my choices in this life. And so the last pair of verses, verses 11 and 12, recognize all this, but, but they make the point, God's limits are rooted in his love, and he desires the best for you. So my son, don't despise the Lord's discipline, See, the father speaking to the son is saying, I'm really conveying the Lord's disciplinary teaching. It's ultimately the Lord that we're concerned about. Now, don't resent his rebuke. You'll be tempted to because it sets limits on your choices. 
but don't resent it because the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord doesn't discipline you because he doesn't love you. He doesn't discipline you because he wants to make you unhappy. He disciplines you because he loves you. And and he knows he created us. He knows what real human flourishing, the real good life for humans is all about. And then the writer makes the point that God is our heavenly father, but even we know in human experience with our fathers, with our parents, we ultimately learn that the limits they set on us were put in place because they love us, because they care about us. Now, some human beings learn that way too late. Some learn it the very hard way. Wise human beings learn it earlier on and recognize we who are parents understand this. Frankly, for parents, it is not always easy to set and enforce the limits. But we do it because we love our kids and because we want to keep them from harm. We want to enrich their lives. And that's the way it is with God's commands. Now, along the way, when we talk about long life and prosperity and physical well-being and, and, and wealth, etc., the temptation when reading all of that is to think it's overpromised. It's an overstated promise of what God will do for us. And, and that's when we, we, all, we need to step back and remember that the Proverbs are Proverbs. Proverbs, by definition, are are true generalizations about life. They aren't mathematical formulas. So, for example, in Proverbs 15.1, the Proverbs say, a gentle answer turns away anger. If someone speaks to you in anger, the best way to, to defuse that to bring peace in the situation is to respond gently. Gentle answer turns away anger. But that is not a formula that says at every point in time in human history, if someone speaks to you in anger and you respond gently, they will immediately cease to be angry. I mean, it would be nice if that were the case. I remember quoting that verse once in a Bible class I was teaching in the first church I served, And one man sitting there in the class said, "Um, obviously Solomon didn't know my wife. (laughs) And and what made that really awkward was she was sitting next to him. (laughs) That was a supremely awkward moment, as you can understand. But awkward as it was, it gave me a chance to say, look, the biblical proverbs are true proverbs but they are true as Proverbs. So it's not as simple as saying, if you just give generously today, then then you'll get some kind of infusion of cash tomorrow. It's not about saying if if you seriously obey God's commands, you will not experience any health. It is saying 
that it, that it is true in general. Obeying God's commands is the path toward the good life in every way. But it's not a mathematical formula about you do this today and that will happen tomorrow. And Scripture as a whole bears that out. They are true as Proverbs, but they are true. The path to human flourishing is obeying God's instruction. And so the Proverbs would say to us, trusting God in his wisdom means you're willing to obey his hard commands. It means when God says, don't retaliate and pay back evil for evil, you'll obey that. And you will turn the other cheek. When the Lord says, always be willing to forgive. If someone sins against you and asks forgiveness, no matter how many times, you'd be willing to forgive. In fact, the Lord goes all beyond all that and says, love your enemies and do good to them. Because that's the way your Father in heaven treats his enemies. God sends the sunshine and the rain, both for his people who love him and for those who've declared themselves his enemies. Our instincts may say, well, that's the way to get steamrolled in this life. That's the way to be a loser in this life. Trusting the Lord means we obey his commands and let him deal with the consequences. It means to pick up on what's here in verses 9 and 10. We will be generous with what God gives us materially, even when the cost of living is high, even when we live in the GTA, even if you live in the middle of Toronto where the prices are far beyond what anybody would ever have imagined. We will still be generous with what God gives us. We'll recognize the difference between needs and wants. We'll remember our Lord's words about laying up treasure for the age to come by giving it away in the present. In our current context, in our society, if there's any place where we need to pay attention to God's revealed will, it's about our sexuality. But stop and think about it. What if the people of Unionville Alliance Church and the people of the wider community around us actually accepted God's instruction that says sex is designed to be the physical seal of a marital covenant between one man and one woman? That's what it's all about. And it has no place outside that context. What if? Well, what would be the effects? Let's see. Um, people would not, would, would, would experience sex within a secure relationship. Not, not within all the, all the vagueness of extramarital relationships, whatever form they may take. People would not be comparing one sexual partner to another. No one, no one would be pregnant on her own. 
apart from marriage. Women would not be abused for personal gratification. There, there wouldn't be any Me Too movement. There'd be much less divorce. I'm not saying divorce would never happen, but there would be much, much less divorce. Children would have two parents for security and models. There'd be much less welfare cost for society. Kids who grow up with two parents tend to finish school in ways that children in single-parent families don't, and on and on. And so the, the question would be, what's negative about any of that and accepting God's instructions about sex? Followers of Jesus Christ have the opportunity to demonstrate the beauty of living within God's revealed structures for sex as for everything else. And so we might say that the point of Proverbs here for us is the wise thing is to obey the manufacturer's instructions. God created us. And so when we think of Scripture, God's revealed will, we should think of it as, as that which is revealed to, to make life good for us, just as a, the manual that a manufacturer provides is to enable you to put the thing together right and use it in the right way. I don't know about you, but a few times over the years, I've... Um, I've trusted in my own instincts rather than reading the manual and following it. And I have to admit, the result was never happy. And I've always had to go back and look at the manual. Um, We just received on Friday from UPS a a new uh, TV stand. It's in a box, heavy box, haven't opened it yet, haven't, haven't had the time to get into it, but I'm going to have to do it soon. I trust there is a manual inside that says, here's how you put it together. And I've learned over time, I'm going to follow that, and it will make my life a lot easier, rather than assuming I just know how to whip this thing together. The manuals are not designed to frustrate us, they're designed to eliminate frustration. If I do it the manual's way, I limit my choices about the way to put it together, but I do it right. In fact, one of my frustrations in our day is that a lot of things now don't come with a printed manual. We had to buy another camera a couple of years back, and where's the manual for use the thing? Well, the manual is on the website. So, so create an icon on my iPad so I can go to that manual and read that thing when I want to. Or I can just learn by experience, I suppose. But the fact is, God made us. God knows what real human flourishing, the good human life is all about. 
Now, some of you here today have never declared yourselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. You, you, may, you may be saying, I know that if I declare myself to be a disciple of Jesus, that's going to change my life in some ways. It's going to set some limits on my life, and I'm not sure I want to do that. You need to understand that following Christ is following the wisdom of God and finding real human life. Whatever changes you may have to make by the empowering of God's spirit will frankly be for your flourishing, not for your destruction. As I've said earlier, there are better, more fundamental reasons to obey God, like seeking his glory. But even at the level of self-interest, wisdom says, I obey the manufacturer's instructions. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you forgive us for those times when we have chosen our own instincts, our own intuitions above your instruction. How foolish that is, and we admit it and confess it and seek your forgiveness. And we pray that you will open our hearts to receive your word, your instruction, that we might experience life, life abundant, life eternal. So, Lord, be at work in us to cause your word to sink deeply into our hearts and to manifest itself for your glory. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.